include a song from some of those bands Firefall toured with and got to be friends with. And he said, that's great. That's Chuck Bartley of Firefall. I'm Jamie Green. And this is Trading Fours. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Holy moly, it is September already. How'd that happen? I hope you have plans for this Labor Day weekend. I am heading down to the Irish Festival in Crown Center with my wife. And I'm super excited that two of the acts that are performing this year at the uh, Irish Fest are previous guests. The Henry Girls from Ireland and Talisk from Scotland. I interviewed them back in February. You can find both of those episodes. Uh, be sure to check that out if you have not heard them before, before you head down to Crown Center. Both great acts and both uh, a really fun interview. Okay, today's guest got me nostalgic and I'm going to tell you why. Going out to dinner was a big deal in my childhood household. With four kids and my mom being a stay-at-home mom, we weren't exactly awash in cash. So eating at a restaurant was a big deal. And it being the 70s, we often ate at chains. One of the favorite spots of the Green family was the neighborhood Pizza Hut, where I loved that it had a huge fireplace and a jukebox. Now, I have talked about my dad quite a bit over the years on here, and let's just say he was not a fan of contemporary music, so the jukebox was an awesome way to hear music I never got to hear at home. Bands like Bread, the Doobie Brothers, America... Jim Croce, and of course, today's guest, Firefall. Firefall is one of those sneaky bands that had more hits than you remember. Of course, I remember hearing Just Remember I Love You being played at the Pizza Hut, but also in a rotation where You Are the Woman and Strange Way. Those were played too, so Firefall is part of the soundtrack of my childhood, which reminds me of simpler times when Pizza Hut, yes, Pizza Hut, was a big deal, like it was like a treat. And, um, I even got to have Coke with dinner. Like, we never drank Coke. Like, it had to be the 4th of July. There was never Coke in my household growing up. Turns out, not only was Firefall making a lot of cool music, the guys in the band were fans of that era of music as well. Their constant touring caused them to become friends with many acts, including the Doobie Brothers, Fleetwood Mac, and many others. Plus, the members of the band had played in other big bands like the Birds, Graham Parsons, Flying Burrito Brothers, and many more. Firefall's new album, Friends and Family, celebrates all of it, with 13 tracks of their contemporaries. Jack Bartley, the great guitarist of the band, take a moment and listen to his playing. He's way underrated. Dialed in from his house in Colorado to talk all about the new album. Jock was a lot of fun. He has great stories to share. So let's go ahead and get started. Here is my conversation with Jock Bartley of Firefall. Thanks so much for being on Trading Fours. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, I've had a chance to listen to the new CD several times. Friends and family, it's coming out soon. 
And as a Gen X kid who grew up in the 70s and 80s, mostly, this was such I just just put a smile on my face through the whole the whole thing. This is a great collection of songs. Was it hard to whittle it down to just 13? Yes. And of course, when our manager, Lynn Fico, who's also our record label at Sunset Boulevard Records, had the idea and the concept for anybody who doesn't know, he said to me, you know, Jock, the original members of Firefall, some of you guys were in other really famous bands like the Birds and Flying Breeder Brothers and Spirit and, you know, uh, Marshall Tucker and Dan Fogelberg and in my case, uh, Graham Parsons. Why don't you guys make an album of just their songs? And the light bulb went off when I when he said that. What a great idea. And I said, you know, we all let's expand that. We also did on our first tour in 1976, we got to travel because our our first album came out uh, and was such a big success and went gold real quick. And suddenly we were on the road with Fleetwood Mac or Leonard Skinner or Loggins of Messina or the band or the Doobie Brothers. I said, let's include a song from some of those bands Firefall toured with and got to be friends with. And he said, that's great. And just to give you an example, so there was a lot, as soon as that idea came to fruition, I uh, I knew that I had to be real careful and take great care picking the songs that we would play. And for instance, Lynn, when he heard that we had toured a lot with the band on their last tour before they went out to uh, California and made the last waltz movie and broke up. He said, Oh, the band, that's great. You guys can do up on cripple Creek. And I went, no friggin' way. <laughs> I said, you know, leave on helm is the only mm -hmm. guy really that should sing up on cripple Creek, yeah. you know? And, you know, I didn't know what Doobie brothers song to pick either because I kind of knew that, you know, there might be thousands of Doobie brothers fans no matter what song we picked saying, how dare they do that song? My favorite song, you know? So it was really tough to sometimes really easy. Like in the case of angry eyes by Loggins and Messina, mm -hmm. that, that song was made for firefall from the get go. That's what we sound like. Yeah, totally. But for instance, now we have a brand new lead singer in firefall, uh, John Basaha, who happens to also be in the babies great great vocalist and he sings a number of the lead vocals on this album i didn't know what heart song to play and mark andy's the original firefall bassist who was the biggest rock star in our band ever from spirit jojo gun heart dan fogelberg you know this album was really kind of about him he uh got kicked off at touring and you know and just said i'm not doing it and he retired you know, two months before this album, and we found John Bisaha and we're going to start this record. When it came time to choose toward the end of the project, which heart song to, to play? And, you know, for instance, Barracuda to me would be off limits. No, no, no. Yeah. We, we can't do that. We can't do that one. You know, and I asked the band, well, what heart song do you think we should do? And John, said 
I could sing the crap out of uh, What About Love? And I went, really? And he said, yeah. And I went, okay, bingo, there we go. So yeah, what that- was cool was the process over a year or more of choosing just the right song by a band that we either played in or were friends with or toured with. And, uh, you know, and the last two songs that were picked um, was uh, uh, the heart song, What About Love? And um, the Doobie Brothers song, um, Long Train Running. And, um, you know, it was just such a fantastic idea. And we we recorded every day and every moment we were in the studio or I was mixing or whatever. We did it with respect for the bands that did those songs, uh, honoring them and the music of the late 60s and the 70s, and really just uh, tried to, uh, to make it, you know, something that people would really like because we weren't trying to compete with the Doobie Brothers or Fleetwood Mac. We could never do that. But we're honoring the music of the late 60s and 70s. And are, and I know how fortunate and lucky I am and Firefall is to have played a small role in the 70s music. Well, you know, it's interesting because, and for a lack of a better terminology, there were so many great melodies in the 70s. I mean, it, it was a very melodic decade. I mean, you know this more than I, because you you played in it. And and these tunes, as I, I, I have, I still have a CD player in my car, Jock. One of the few hey, people. Me too. Okay. Me too. So I, I, I slipped your CD in and, and listening to it, and you know, it just puts a smile on your face, and you know, um, you forget how many great songs all these people wrote. I mean, like you said, I'm sure it was. You could have picked 30 Loggins and Messina songs. You could have picked, you know, there's a bazillion songs you could pick. I did like. It kind of felt like you thought about your band makeup and what worked so well for you as part of this process too. Is that is that fair? When you thought about a song, it's like, how do we approach it? Yeah, sure. Now, I will say that I, you know, as leader of the band and producer of this record, I knew that there were certain songs that we pretty much had to play like the original. Mm-hmm. Um, now, having said that, I know that, like, for instance, on part of the plan by Dan Fogelberg, even if we played it right down the pipe, like Dan recorded, um, you know, uh, back in the 70s, it wouldn't sound like Dan Fogelberg because it'd be a different singer, it'd be different studio, different guitar sounds, all of that kind of sound. But that's a, that's a case of where I kept it really like the original. And in fact, my guitar part, uh, my solo, pretty much just uh, copied Dan's original solo, which was great, you know, and then... Having said that, there's a number of songs that we kept really right down the pipe and didn't do anything to uh, that wasn't on the original. And then there were songs like Long Train Running on the Doobie Brothers where I wanted to change it up a little bit. We added a saxophone. And as you'll notice, the signature guitar lick by Tommy Johnson on that, there's two guitar licks on that song of the Doobie Brothers on their original version. And I took the second most important guitar part and made it the main one on our version and kind of lessened the impact of the, what 
is the sing- signature Doobie Brothers guitar part. And when we added the sax, I just loved where it went in a kind of a different direction. But, you know, to me, it's still true to the, the original. Yeah. Yeah, I just saw them last year, Jock. They still are amazing. They still are just... Oh, yeah. Yeah, they were great. And that was back last year where Tom was still touring with them. Uh, can we talk a little more about Dan Fogelberg a little bit? Absolutely. So this is a guy who died way too young. Um, and what a great song crafts person. I mean, he just could write just... I mean, I, I can't... You know, whether it's the Christmas tune, all the anxiety at the end that, uh, you know... Oh, man. That one still tears me up. Uh, my father was a band director, so leader of the band. That's another like a punch in the gut because that's how I felt about my father. Um, we lost a lot when we lost Dan Fogelberg. Um, so a- I could see- absolutely. And of course, Mark Andes played bass with Dan Fogelberg for almost you know six eight years or something toward the end of his life. And I remember the last time the late, great Dan Fogelberg played Red Rocks. Um, I got to go sit in with him and we got to trade licks one last time. And uh, I knew Dan, I wasn't a really good friend of his, but I just had immense respect. And you're right, you know, the 70s music, really before record labels got control of things and a stranglehold on artists, you know, and. I mean, back in the 70s, yeah, sometimes they would come in and say, well, we don't hear a single or, you know, but bands got to do kind of what they wanted. And it either sold or didn't sell. And the label was either way behind the new album of this band or not. And, uh, you know, it goes back to the Beatles, you know, the best band ever. Um all of us and many bands in England and 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 in uh, the United States learned, wow, you can write your own songs. What a concept, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, you know, the music of the 60s was amazing. And, you know, the American Beatles, the Birds came out with their fantastic first album. You know, it was great because in the 70s, we all learned from the um, from the Beatles, you know, six, eight, ten years earlier, that you could write your songs. Now they better be damn good songs, but you could write them. And the songwriters made a lot of the money, you know, that would happen. And uh, going back to Firefall, I have to tell you a story that is pretty damn incredible. Um, I played with Graham Parsons and Emmy Lou Harris, even though I wasn't a country picker. I got the gig at the last moment and went out on the road and and played, and it was unbelievable. Um, and Rick Roberts, who had replaced Graham Parsons and the Flying Breeder Brothers, um, and l- later went on to a solo career, he came and heard us in. New York City, the, the Fallen Angels with Graham and Emmy Lou. And in fact, a year earlier, when the Burrito Brothers, Rick Roberts and Chris Hillman, the second incarnation of the Burrito Brothers, played in Washington, D.C., after their gig in D.C., Rick heard about this really great female, you know, uh, folk singer, Emmy Lou Harris, 
and he went and heard her play at some little club and just freaked out like everybody did back then. And he called Chris Hillman and said, you got to get down here. Oh, man. And Chris came down. And um, within a few days, he called Graham Parsons out in the uh, out in L.A. and said, I think we found the girl you're looking for. And sure enough, and I totally fell into the Graham Parsons gig. Anyway, I met Rick Roberts in New York City. He was going to play Max's Kansas City the day after Graham Parsons and Emmylou Harrison the Fallen Angels played. And we got, Rick and I got talking and, and said, you live in Boulder? I live in Boulder. We should get together. Um, and a few months later, we did get together and he heard me play in a rock and roll setting in a band I was playing with out here. And he said, God, this guy good is really good. And so I started jamming with Rick to make, to help him make his third solo record. Well, at the same time, now Boulder was a magnet for people like Stephen Stills, Chris Hillman, Richie Fury, Joe Walsh, Carl Wilson of the Beach Boys. The Mountains Above Boulder was a hotbed of music for about five or six or seven years in the early 70s. And uh, when Mark Andes started jamming with Rick Roberts and I, suddenly it didn't feel like a band anymore. I mean, I'm sorry. Suddenly it didn't feel like a solo record. It really felt like a band. And Rick at that point said, you know, I know this great singer songwriter from Washington, D.C., Larry Burnett. And man, he'd be great in this band. You want to hear a song of his? And he pulled out this reel to reel tape. You know, of course, that was years before cassettes came out. And the first song we heard of Larry's was Cinderella, which was really? like, oh, oh, my God, which Larry, by the way, wrote when he was 16 years old Isn't which that crazy? Is crazy like, so we said get him out here the end of this story and the point of this story is when larry burnett came out and started rehearsing with our new band we didn't have a name yet we didn't have any gigs yet but we were putting something together and we knew we had some great songs in that first week of rehearsal in boulder colorado we had 25 original songs to choose from by Rick Roberts and Larry Burnett. And pretty much all of them were great. And some of those songs that we worked out in the first week of rehearsal before we even had a name ended up a year and a half later being on our first album, like Mexico, It Doesn't Matter, Cinderella, Living Ain't Living, all these great songs. So, you know, Firefall was amazingly blessed to form around two singer songwriters who were really prolific. And, you know, to me, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of thousands and thousands of great lead guitar players in the world, you know, but how many bands have great songs right from the get go and have that many songs to choose from. And when Michael Clark from the birds joined into the band, you know, we were we were ready and willing and able to go, you know, try to get a record deal, which we did. And in 1976, with the addition of the late, great David Muse on sax and flute and keyboards to complete our sound. Sadly, David died a couple of years ago from uh, cancer. Um, we our first record was pretty damn astounding, you know, and it really 
the number one thing that was important about that was the songs, you know, the songs and the singers to sing the songs. But, you know, the band really had the, the, uh, the, the band had a synergy and a sound that was really pretty unique. And yes, it, it came from that Southern California, you know, Eagles, Flying Burrito Brother, Poco kind of quote country rock or folk rock kind of thing. And hey, we had a guy in the birds in our band, Michael Clark, you know, but we just we just had such great songs to choose from from the get go that that to me, that's been the most important thing all along. Yeah, and those songs are timeless. You still, your songs, you still hear your songs. I've, you know, I've got an acoustic duo. We play some of your songs to this day. We get, people love it too. I mean, it just, it just takes you back to a time. I, it's interesting too. Um, you having a saxophone and a flutist. A lot of people didn't have that, but that was kind of part of your signature sound too. It was a big right. part of it. It was a big part of it. And for me as lead guitar player, I mean, for the first year and a half of Firefall, we were a five-piece guitar band. And any solo that came up, I took. You know, and even if you're great, if you take every solo every night and a whole, you know, on, on the whole gig, you know, people get tired of it. And for me, suddenly, to have David to take a sax solo or a flute solo or interact spontaneously on stage where we jam together, it was just great. And he was an amazing musician. And uh, and it was um, it was like pretty much off the charts. And that's one of the things that I, for the last 30 years, I've kept really a tight rein on, which some bands, you know, don't do. They get so tired of playing their one big hit or their two big hits. They, you know, they change the arrangement and they're just tired of the song, even though people are paying great money to come hear their favorite song. I know that when we play uh, a number of songs, You Are the Woman, Just Remember I Love You, the beginning of, you know, the, the song uh, Strange Way until the flute solo, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of those songs need to sound as, as close to the record as we can make them. You know, You Are the Woman, I haven't changed anything, and I always play that guitar solo because... That's the guitar solo that everybody expects. But having said that, uh, Firefall has the ability to jam out and go new places, like on Mexico, me playing lead guitar, or the flute solo on Strange Way on the Latin groove on the end that we, we put in. You know, we can really stretch out and potentially go new places any night because it's spontaneous and the interaction of the musicians, you know, people love nowadays, but it really goes back to the songs. Well, I think a lot of that too is because it's so popular music today is so manufactured. It's, you know, you get nine guys in a room, all they're trying to do is write a hit, right? There's not that right band, band of brothers kind of thing of a band where you guys are actually in a room together and play off stuff and then you know so many people now are using stems when they play live shows so they're not technically live really you know they got they got a click track in their ear and stuff i think there's a longing for the original music 
and the way that it was done originally, you know, I just saw Loverboy in concert like last week, and it's just great to hear guys that are, it's the entire band, I think, or maybe one guy dropped out, but it's almost the same guys that, you know, I saw 40 years ago. And there's something wow that's refreshing about, it just puts a smile on your face, Jock. It just, it, it, it makes you happy. Yeah, that, that's really true. I know how lucky and fortunate I am to be in a band that has that many recognizable songs, whether they were an AM hit like You Are The Woman or Just Remember I Love You, or an FM hit like Cinderella or Mexico or some of that stuff. So we kind of had the best of both worlds. And like I said earlier, for us to fall in out of the out of the blue, it, opening shows for you know, the Doobie Brothers or the band. I mean, Levon Helm and Robbie Robertson and Rick Danko and all the boys. Oh, my God. What great, great music. Or Fleetwood Mac. We played a lot of shows opening for Fleetwood Mac. The new Fleetwood Mac with Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham um, when the White Album came out. And by the time Rumors came out and they became the biggest band in the world, you know, they knew that we could handle really well a 35 or 40 minute opening act set. So we played a lot of shows during the rumors tour, which, you know, we were playing stadiums in front of 60, 70,000 people a day. So how was that? I mean, there's all, and I, I can't believe I'm using this pun, but there've been rumors about that band, both being brilliant and dysfunctional. Um, what did you see as an opening act? Well, by the time rumors came around, of course, Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks, who had been an item, had broken up. And John McVie and Christine McVie, rest your soul, mm -hmm. had broken up. And yeah, you know, they were, they came to a gig and each one of them had their own dressing room. And some of them had their own limo, you know, to take. And, um, but you know, the music from the Rumors album, even though it's funny because a lot of those Stevie Nicks songs are about, you know, what a jerk Lindsay had been or yeah. breaking up with Lindsay or whatever, you know, so it was, yeah. it was different, but they were so big and, you know, to, to be able to sell out a stadium show with, you know, 50 or 60,000 people, geez. It was those were the best gigs, I think, I that we ever did. And we did a lot of great gigs. And frankly, I I still kind of kick myself, you know, because, uh, you know, I didn't take a camera at all on any of those gigs. I was just doing my work and having fun and playing like a rock star and all that. But I sure wish I would have had photos of the original Leonard Skinner playing on stage who always kicked ass or Fleetwood Mac or the band. I mm. got to, I got to when the band with Firefall would finish our set and we'd dry off and I'd go up and hang behind the curtain and I'd be about 10 feet away from Levon Helm playing drums and singing. And I just was astounded. You know, here, here I am on stage watching the band play and they were one of the best American bands ever. Yeah. I mean, all those guys. That was a great, what a great era. I mean, that's a, it's so true. You know, when you're talking about Fleetwood Mac too, like 
is there a more underrated guitar player from the general public? Every guitar player loves Lindsey Buckingham's guitar playing um, because it's so unique and it's, you know, all the finger picking and stuff. It, I assume you enjoy just sitting there and watching him play as well. Oh, man. Yeah. Lindsey's a genius and great songwriter and amazing player. Now, you know, in later years, he as a solo guy, you know, his solos would get a little bit out in left field a bit but boy back in the day you know that's what a lead guitar player needs to do is is play the best thing for the song and use all of your experience and your licks and how, whatever you play to help the song it's not about showing off it's not about hey look how fast i can play or hey you know like an ego thing it's really playing a subservient role as a dominating lead guitar player to what the song needs. And frankly, on this album, you know, I knew a lot of those guitar players. I got to hang with Toy Caldwell of Marshall Tucker, or, you know, we didn't hang too much with Leonard Skinner, but, you know, to watch those three guitar players just kick it out every darn night, you know, when I, when I was going to play Can't You See, the guitar part on, um, our version of of, can't, of the Marshall Tucker song, Can't You See? Mm -hmm. I knew, and I didn't listen to the original, and I didn't really try to cop any of Toy's licks, but I put myself and my talents over to trying to play the right thing and the right respectful thing, honoring Toy Caldwell, you know, as the lead guitar player. So, you know, there was a lot of responsibility on that, too, because you know as well as I do that, you know, a lot of lead guitar players who are really good, they overplay. It's mm -hmm. all about ego. Hey, look at me. I can play fast and stuff. And the truth is, it's not that at all. No, I think of what was it? Who was it? Mozart? Who said that it's not what you play? It's the notes you don't play that matter. You know, well, not only probably Mozart, but, yeah. uh, you know, uh, Miles Davis. I mean, yep. he was the king of one note. And to just go back to my past, I started taking lessons from um, when I was eight and a half years old from a world famous jazz guitar player named Johnny Smith, who had played with, um, you know, with uh, all the big names, you know, uh, Doc Severinsen and and uh, why am I uh, Stan Getz and, yep. you know, and Bing Crosby. And, you know, and he was he was a great guitar player who could play faster than anybody but he hardly ever did. And he only played, you know, what was right for the song. I don't think he ever, when I was a little kid, I don't think he ever said to me that taste as a soloist or tasteful playing isn't what you play, it's what you don't play. But I got that message loud and clear by the time I was 11 or 12 or 13 years old. It's like, you know, you need to play what the song calls for. And my whole career as a soloist has been about trying to enhance songs, not trying to be fancy or flashy or whatever, is to play things that the song needs. And it's worked out pretty good. Yeah, I'd say so. So let's, before we go, Jock, let's talk about all these special guest people you had on here. This got to be a ton of fun for you. I mean, you've got, I'm looking at the list here, John Jorgensen and... 
who am I forgetting here? Steve Amity in Dallas. I mean, these are some heavy hitters. This must have been fun to fill it out with oh, these folks. Oh, uh, obviously. And I wonder, I actually asked a few other name people to be on the record and couldn't really get a hold of them. I won't even tell you who I was going for, but for instance, Howard Lease from Hart. We used to tour with Hart all the time. I got to be really good friends with Howard. And in the past eight or 10 years, um, he's played with a bad company and, and uh, you know, the, the singer in Bad Company and Free and just a great guitar player. I asked him, I asked Howard, um, do you want to play the solo on What About Love? And he said, wow, thanks, sure. And then he listened to the beginnings of our version. And he said, yeah, but you changed the chords on the core, on the solo. I can't play my original solo that I did, which was brilliant on the original heart version of What About Love. And I said, Howard, I don't want you to play the same solo. This is a different version. Play whatever you feel like, you know? And when he played his solo, it, it he emailed it back to us and I went, wow, this is great. A little side, a sidebar though. Um, I asked him to play some power, power chords on the choruses of what about love, our version of that. And he, you know, cause he's, you know, he's been playing with Paul Rogers and bad company. I'm going, yeah. Okay. So when he sent me his solo, beautiful notes, it was the solo that we ended up using, except he, he and his engineer did a really clean version, like a plugged in direct guitar with no distortion on the solo. And when I heard it, I went, oh my gosh, uh, I was hoping for power here as opposed to clean, you know, clean direct notes. And unfortunately his engineer had printed the reverb and the echo on his clean solo. So, you know, I went, well, what can we do to make this more how I hear it? And I re-recorded his clean solo on another track and we put an amp simulator to it, right? Which you mm -hmm. can do in the studio. Picked out which amp you want to use, Marshall, Fender, what do you want? And we picked out the amp. But when we did that, that increased the echo and the reverb. Mm. And it was too it was too much. And I went, God, we got two two tracks of Howard, one clean, one distorted. I bet I guess I better learn the solo, which I did. I learned Howard's solo verbatim. I played it with my distorted power guitar with no effects on it and put it in there and it sounded great there's three guitars on that solo but you know we made it sound like there was only one yeah because that's what you're supposed to do the engineers don't want you to put anything on it they want it all clean so they can like you said put an amp simulator on it do whatever they want to it so right and a lot of times yeah. as a producer you know you'll you'll go well, I really like that, but I think we need to put some chorusing on it or, yeah, let's have some echo or something. So on guitar parts, particularly, you know, and piano and stuff, you want to you want to record them clean and as the instrument sounds through the amp or just through a microphone. And then in the mixing stage, you can kind of do whatever you want with it, what's ever needed. Yep, absolutely. So I assume you're touring. This, are you going to tour this fall to support this? Or what, what's your thoughts for the band in the next year? We actually have a lot of touring going in the fall. Okay. We've barely been working for some reason this summer. 
which is fine with me. Um, you know, we've had like four or five gigs in the last three months. So we've barely been working, but yes, we have a lot of gigs upcoming. And yes, we are going to um, include one or two or three of these songs from friends and family, which I know will go over great. But the problem is, you know, when we are, when we're on a show, that's a package that might have Atlanta rhythm section, firefall Orleans and pure Prairie league, you know, one of those kind of shows, right. you're only given like 45 minutes to play, which is fine. You know, I prefer playing a 90 minute set and stretching out. But when you're on a package bill and you get 45 minutes, for the last 20 years, I know what songs need to be in that 45 minutes because Firefall had a lot of hit, hits and songs that people want to hear. Yep. So if it's a short set, I don't know how many of these songs we're going to be able to add without taking a goodbye, I love you out or something out from the Firefall set. But yes, we are going to be playing some of those shows and we do have headlining shows where it's either a 90 minute set or two sixties. And we'll play a lot of this album. And Hey, I have a scoop for you, my friend. I love a scoop. Um, the scoop is I'm already starting friends and family too. Oh, very cool. And you know, it's such a great idea. And really what it amounts to is getting to carefully pick some of the best songs from the late sixties and seventies. And, you know, so we're already three songs into the new record. And, you know, one of the songs was, a, a, you know, we, we did, uh, so you want to be a rock and roll star by the, by the birds. Yep. And I didn't really want to have two bird songs on this record. And by the way, you mentioned John Jorgensen. When we, when we did feel a whole lot better, the Gene Clark song off the birds first album, great, great song. And God, the birds with McGuinn Crosby, Hillman, you know, Gene Clark, Michael Clark. Oh, what what a band. They they knew how yep. to make records. Um, I knew that I wanted to ask my friend John Jorgensen to play 12 string on this because, you know, like he, he's one of the best guitar players in the world. And, you know, so it's him playing 12 on it and taking the solo. So, yeah, it wasn't an ego thing. I wanted to have a, you know, and Tristan Bowden, who we met when he was in Kenny Loggins' band, he was in Firefall for about a year, and and then he was in Chicago as the drummer for 25 or 30 years. I knew I wanted to get him on a song, and on Simple Man, which is the first single off of this record that's out now, that's Tristan Bowden on drums and our good friend Lance Hoppin on bass from, from Orleans. So, you know, it's all about the song, and I knew both of those guys would kill that one. It's got to be a lot of fun to be a point in your life where you're just like, fuck it, I'm going to do what I want, right? Like, yeah. you know, right? Because when you're young, you're like, oh, what will people think? And I don't, you know, because this guy, and now you're at a point in your life, you're like, yeah, I'm going to do what I want to do. <laughs> I'm going to like it. And well, yeah, it. within reason. And again, I felt a really big responsibility, not only to the bands of songs that we were doing, but also to their fans, mm -hmm. you know, going, our version, whether it's different or similar to the original version by that band, needs to really stand up and be be good. And the thing about the production on this album that I really have to pat myself on the back on a little bit is I kept it pretty sparse. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't I, we didn't put in a lot of extra guitars or strings or 
keyboard parts or, hey, let's have, you know, you know, a lot more vocals on this. You know, it's like I wanted to let the songs and the vocals and, you know, stand for themselves. And I really like how the album production is really pretty sparse on this Friends and Family album. And it's it's great. It's a perfect, you know, I you because you produce this, correct? You're the producer. I'm I'm the producer. No. Which you know what producing is, of course, what, which is sitting and listening, listening well and going, I think we need something else here, or ooh, we don't need that last guitar part that we just added. You know, it's uh, being a producer is being a really good listener and hip to what the song you're working on either needs or doesn't need. Yeah. And that's the thing about a lot of the music now. It's so formula and, uh, you know, and, and the producers and the groups that write the songs, they just, you know, a lot of times it's really overproduction. Yeah. You know, they, they put so much into the song, you know, that, you know, you kind of have to really listen through to what the, you know, the melody's doing or whatever. So me being a seventies guy, you know, and and having worked with really good producers on the original Firefall albums, including the great Tom Dowd and Ron and Howard Albert, who did a lot of Crosby, Stills and Ash and Stephen Stills albums and and stuff. Um, you know, you kind of learn that production is kind of almost a hands off type of thing. You know, let the musicians play what they want to play. If it's not working, you'll make suggestions. You know, I, I think you need to play a little bit less here or whatever. Hey, I got a story for you that's pretty cool that I just thought of. I love stories. Let's go. Thinking about Tom Dowd and, and the, the Criteria Studio stuff. I knew on our first record that the song that I was going to be able to kind of show what I was about as a lead guitar player was going to be Rick Roberts' song Mexico. And you know, I played that two years live, getting ready for the moment to actually record the solo on that. And the day before I was going to play the solo on Mexico um, in the studio at Criteria, they had the idea to add that mariachi horn section in the middle of my solo going da 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 da, you know, mm -hmm. and, which is great. But as a soloist, I'd never had to contend with anybody else taking up space in the middle of my solo. So anyway, I'm warming up out in the studio. It's criteria. The BGs are down the hall. Steven Stills is down the hall. People are in and out of the control room, and I'm warming up out in the recording room. Producer pushes the button and goes, you ready? And I'm going, yeah. So we they start playing the song. I'm playing, and what I do, I think, really well is I play off vocalists really good. Rick Roberts would sing a line and then I'd play a guitar line that was either reminiscent of his vocal line that, it, that he just sang or not, but just right brain it, not even thinking about what you're playing, just play. And, and it, when it came time for the solo, um, I'm, my brain's thinking, well, somewhere in here is the horn section. I'll just play until they start playing. So I'm playing and doing my thing. And then all of a sudden there they are. And I stop playing and I play and then they play and then I answer and then they play. And then I finished the, the song off and it ended up being a one take performance on that. And the producer pushed the button at the end and said, wow, that was great. Come on in. And I went, you know, 
Jim, let me let me see if I can beat that solo section where the horns play because I had no idea what I was going to do or if it even worked or whatever. And he says, oh, no, it was fantastic. Come on in. I said, Jim, really? I've been working <laughs> for this song for two, two years. Let me see if I can beat that section where the horns play. And he said, no, come on in. And I go, what? I take my guitar off. I'm a little ticked off because, hey, you know, this was going to be my moment to shine on the first album. I take my guitar off, going to go give him a piece of my mind. I walk into the control room, and the first person I see is my guitar hero, Eric Clapton, who's been watching me play. Wow. And I just freaked out and kind of hum, hum, turned into Jackie Gleason, you know, humming, 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 you know. And I kind of crawled over to him, and I went, ah. And he stood up and said, keen playing, man, and walked out. It's the only time I've ever met Eric Clapton. But the finish to that story is it's a good thing I didn't know he was in the control room oh, totally. before I started playing. I wouldn't have been able to play anything. No, that would have been horrible. <laughs> that would have been horrible. <laughs> That's like your worst nightmare, right? To have one of your heroes show up at a gig and stare at you while you're trying to play. I mean, that's a great yeah. story. So is that the one that's on the record? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. It was the one taker. A one taker, which, you know, I'm kind of a, not kind of, I'm a right brain soloist. And, you know, when you're in the studio working on a brand new song, it's like a, a blank canvas for a painter. You know, you don't know what you're qu quite creating yet. Mm -hmm. And like on just, uh, you know, on, uh, on You Are the Woman, I didn't know what, we'd never played that song on stage and it kind of stood out and was the poppy white bread kind of song on that album. And everybody kind of knew, God, this could be a hit. When it came time to play the solo, you know, I it took me a couple passes to figure out where I'm going to start from and then just play. And that was another pretty quick solo that just came out you know because really a lot of the best players tap into that musical muse you know that comes through you and, and when you listen to you know Clapton back in the cream days or Stevie Ray Vaughan or yep. any of the great guitar players around they're not really thinking they're just playing yep I think some I think Clapton actually said that when Stevie Ray played it was like an open channel like it just came somewhere um but right. he just he just did it so well, it's been a ton of fun we didn't even get to talk I, I love paul reed smith's guitars and you're a prs guy too correct i am indeed i'm a i didn't even know i was a players list guy with prs until i saw a poster that listed my name and i went hey i'm a, I'm a players list guy i have a, i have a number of prs guitars and the way i came about prs was i have I am lucky enough to have, uh, and what I played in the old Firefall days, I have a 1958 Cherry Sunburst Gibson Les Paul, which until about two or three years ago where real estate went nuts, was worth more than my house now as a vintage guitar. And I knew even back in the 70s or 80s, I probably shouldn't keep taking this Les Paul out on the road with me, you know? And in fact, at one gig, some radio guy kicked it over un oh, unknowing no. in the dark on stage uh. and uh, broke, uh, broke the neck. 
Oh, you no. know, and we sent oh, wow. the we sent the guitar back to Gibson, and they refinished it and fixed the neck and everything. But after that, I went. I need to find another guitar, you know. And you know, Les Pauls and Gibsons. I've always been a Gibson kind of guy. Love Strats and Telecasters, but Gibsons with the humbucking pickups and the response you get from an amp. I mean, if you listen to my solo on "It Doesn't Matter" or Mexico for that 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 matter um you know you can see when i hit a note and it it takes off and there's new harmonics and you know i could hold notes for as long as i wanted to which was great you know it goes back into one note you know makes a lot more sense than 20 notes sometimes but um yeah so i i looked around and prs paul reed smith um was a brand new company in the 80s yeah. and and I ordered a guitar from Paul and I said, I want a blue guitar. And at that time, the only blue guitar that they had that they put out kind of manufactured was this really dark blue guitar. And I said, no, I want something lighter, you know, because being a, an artist and a guy that's way into colors, you know, I said, I want a guitar, a blue guitar that's light enough to wear when you are on stage and there's blue lights and red lights on your guitar, it just becomes neon. It just glows. And we went through, you know, we, I remember talking to him like, you know, 15 times before we came up with the color. And finally he was a little exasperated and he said, okay, jock, <laughs> how about this? Look at a big pin, look at the cap of a big pin. And I, and I had one, I went, Oh, that's great. He says, great. We got the color now, Big Pin Blue. <laughs> he says, yeah, we'll call the color Big Pin Blue. And I said, no, 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 we got it. He says, well, okay, how about Bartley Blue? And I went, no, 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 that sounds too, you know, that too. how about Colorado Blue? So anyway, I have a one-of-a-kind PRS that is a unique color of blue that Paul's never made again. And I'll tell you what, with his technology of the pickups that you can do a switch from humbucking to a single coil out of phase kind of sound mm -hmm. and also the locking headstock mm -hmm. you know now i never use a whammy bar really but you know it, it's just it's just been great and all of the songs on friends and family you know i did the solos on and it's really you know really guitar players you know have bone tone you know yeah you listen to stevie ray vaughn nobody else sounds like him nope. and it was really in his left hand you yep. know and and same thing santana or or eric clapton or lindsey buckingham you know it's it's just great and i'm fortunate to have played guitar so long i don't even know how long i played guitar 40 or 50 years or 60 years or something probably 60 now um you know that the the guitar your left hand and your amp you're using, it's really great. And on stage, and I play through a rental amp every night on stage, there's a point where with the, the amp, which is being micro, mic, your monitor where your microphone is and your guitar is coming out of that, sometimes I'll be able to find that magical place between the amp and the monitor to where I'll hit one note and then it'll just go, and it'll be that indefinite sustain. I'm going, there we are. Don't move, Jock. Now yep. let's play the solo. That's great. Well, it's been such a 
fun time talking to you, Jock. I really dig this CD. It's in my car. I'll listen to it again today when I'm running errands. Um, for people, it's called Friends and Family. Uh, the first comes out on September 20th. You can listen to um, Simple Man, the Leonard Skinner song, um, which is out now. And if you go to Amazon, you can pre-order uh, Friends and Family CD by Firefall. And I think I've been told that it's uh, that you'd get it two weeks before it's actually released. So thank you for having me. It was been oh, it's, really nice talking to you. It's been total joy. I, I hope you make it to Kansas City. If you do, I'll come out and say hello. I'd love to see you guys live. You do that. Thank you very much. All right, Jock. Have a great day. Jock Bartley, everybody. Again, the new album coming out in just three weeks from today. Friends and family. And, and, and yeah, I, I put down uh, show links for Firefall. Also, the uh, pre-order for Amazon. If you want to get it a couple weeks early, as Jock said, you can. Uh, I dig it a lot. There's a lot of cool tunes on here. Uh, Jock was a ton of fun. And uh, like I said in the open, he, he's underrated as a guitarist. If you're a guitar player uh, and you are not aware of Jock Bartley's playing, take the time and uh, listen to him because he's really good. And he's a PRS guy, so he has to be cool, right? We all are. Okay, that's going to do it for this time. I am back in two weeks. Two weeks from today. Uh, I had Anastasia Elliott on in the spring. Or was it actually winter? I think it was maybe winter because she was at NAMM. And that's how she came on my radar. We talked a lot about her creative process stuff. And guess, and I told her, hey, when your album's out, come back. Her album's out. It's really, really, really good. Uh, it's one of the best things I've heard this year. If you uh, dig music, check her out. So she is going to be on. Uh, I will put it up on the 14th. I'm actually going to do a Facebook Live with her. If you follow me on Facebook, you can watch it live. Or on YouTube, you can watch it live. Or if you want to wait till the 14th, you can do that. Did I confuse you enough? I think I probably did. All right, that's going to do it. Until then, go out, support live music. We'll talk real soon. Bye-bye. Hey.